We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. back my friends it's constitution thursday on afternoons live text machine remains open five six five dave that's five six five three two eight three it's me dave along with john and it's the time of the week when we turn to the pages the words of the united states constitution we read them we talk about what they meant when they were written talk about the debates about them how they got to be where they are what they meant then how they've been interpreted how they apply today and how they affect your life even going forward. This might seem one of those stranger ones, John, because it seems like it doesn't really affect us today at all. And that is, of course, Section 9 of Article 1. It begins with what is known as the Slave Trade Clause, which reads as follows. The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1,808. But a tax or duty may be imposed on such importations, not exceeding $10 for each person. Article 1, Section 9, the first clause, known as the Slave Trade Clause. Constitution Thursday, 1560 AM at SDO, KWSX, 1280 AM Stockton, everywhere via iHeartRadio. A loqui conizio stand up. Tell those who oppose liberty, don't. Tread on me. Well, it would be hard to ignore the elephant in the room of slavery when it comes to the United States history. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because a few weeks ago, well, when the the last Congress met and then the new Congress took over this year, when one of the things, it, it didn't get quite as much play this time around as it did the first time around. But the uh, the new Congress wanted to read the Constitution of the United States from the well. The first order of business was to read the Constitution, which really is not a bad idea. But there was a lot of debate because the people who made the decision as to read the Constitution decided what sections they would read. They did not read the whole thing. Anything that that they felt had been changed or modified or amended it out, they just skipped over. So this is one of the clauses that they left out. Of the Constitution, and it created a lot of of uh, backlash. It left uh, some hard feelings. Some of the folks um, were not happy about the fact that it left out for the wrong reasons. They wanted it in there because they wanted to prove that the founders were racists, when in fact it should have been read because it proves exactly the opposite, as we've talked about on numerous occasions. the The issue of slavery is a horns of a dilemma, the horns of Hattin, if you almost will, of of the Constitution, because. Really, the debates made it very clear, and we've talked about this at great length with the three-fifths clause. We were either going to have a country with slavery or we weren't going to have a country. That's what it came down to. Right. So as much as many, if not uh, a majority of the framers, hated the idea of slavery, argued passionately against it with speeches that even today, if you take the – you'll find that they they also understood that without union – 
not only was there going to be a hodgepodge of potentially up to 13, 14 different little countries, but without that union, John, they really believed in 1798 that there would be war then. And clearly there would have been because as the nation expanded, as they expanded west, the arguments would become over the, over the new territories, who, was, who got this land, who got that land, whose army took that. What was it Ben Franklin said, we all hang together? Yeah, that was actually during the Revolutionary War, but we, we hang together or we hang separately, one of the two. But it applies here as well. It was going to be a country with slavery or disunion without it. Now, the idea of slavery, of course, had been around for some time. It was legalized in Massachusetts in 1642. There is actually no reference in any written material to an actual slave by the word slave until 1661. So even though it had been legalized, there weren't really any direct references to it. Now, there may have been slaves before that, or or they may have been indentured servants. It is unclear from the literature that's available as to the status of persons in the United States or in what the colonies at that point prior to 1661. Indeed, it's fairly obvious that many of the the Africans arriving early on were, were treated as indentured servants. In some communities, they were, once they had served their time, like uh, like folks from England had, they were allowed to own property, run for office, vote, all of the privileges of citizenship. Somewhere along the line, something changed. Nobody's really exactly sure what or why that changed. There, there's got to be an interesting sociological and psychological study in that as to how it happened. Um, I don't have time to get into all that today. It's one of those things where I always, the psychology of slavery has always been an, an, of, of interest to me. How do people get to that point? Because I, Again, I, I lived in the South for many, many years. I was a pastor in the South. And the racism, the latent racism is still there. I, I think I've told you the story before about the lady that came to one of my services and was really upset with me because she didn't regularly attend our church. But her pastor at her church, John, had informed her that black people were the descendants of Cain. And that's why they were that color. That's That was the mark of Cain. And, and so we weren't supposed to. This was 1995. Wow. People. This wasn't. You know, 1950, this wasn't 18, this was 1995. There were people that still believed this. See, now my sister and I just had a really recent encounter with this, this kind of, that sort of icky feeling. You know, we watched, we watched Django Unchained, which I'm sure takes liberties with history all over the place. I mean, it's Tarantino, but, but the very idea that you could see another human being as not a human being. Is and disturbing. treat them as such is just so alien to me. Like, I really just, I don't understand it. Like, how do you... How do you get to that point? Yeah, that's what I, I want to know. I have I no frame that. of reference for getting to that right. point. And yet, it's clear that at some point that a significant portion of of the world had that point and still does even to this day in some part. Now, it, it is intriguing because England, the mother country, if you will, of which we were colonies at that point, had made it very clear that the moral disapproval of slavery was very, very, very firm. In fact, no such slavery existed in England. You could not have a slave in England. However, you could live in London and own a plantation in South Carolina where you, in fact, owned slaves. And that was fairly common practice. Really? It was not, um, it was not frowned upon. You could, it was, it was considered, well, you know, 
uncultured, I guess, so to have slaves like, in England. Well, as long as you know, and like as long as it's all out of sight, right? You know, in, in many ways, it, it really was that. England um, it sounds like kind of a lot of stuff was like that, though. It, it was disturbing on a lot of levels. There, there came a moment in 1772 when um, a a slave. James Somerset, an enslaved American, was purchased by Charles Stewart, customs officer, while he while the customs officer was in Boston. He then, of course, came to America, or I'm sorry, came to England, and uh, because he was there, he sued for his his freedom. Chief Justice of the King's Bench, Lords Manfield, uh, had a hearing in 1772 and argued that that slavery is well. This is his actual writing of the of the case. The state of slavery is such a na- is of such a nature that is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, other than somebody passing a law saying we're going to make somebody slaves. And he's absolutely correct. That's the only way you can, in fact, have that. The 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 founders of the nation, the, the writers of the Declaration of Independence, I mean, all men are created equal. All men are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. And they're not saying all men except those who are slaves they either. They didn't say that. They didn't mean it. And when you look at the arguments at the Constitutional Convention, and you read the language of the Constitution over and over again. Remember in the three-fifths clause, it never uses yeah. the word slaves. It uses the words persons, three-fifths persons. And even here, the migration and importation of such persons, and capitalized, by the way, persons, uh, any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by Congress until the year 1808. But if you do, a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person, again, capitalized. The, the framers were putting this in there. Now, at the time, only three states were, in fact, importing slaves. Uh, only three states were actually actively participating in the, 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 the Atlantic slave trade. And those, of course, were the three most southern states, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. The rest... Virginia, Virginia would have been the only other front. Maryland, Delaware would have had seacoast, but they were not participating in the in the actual slave trade. You know, where the ships go to what is it? I vaguely remember this from high school. They start in Africa, they go get rum, the slaves to America, rum to or molasses to Jamaica, rum to where you remember how all this works. Yeah, and those three states. So really, you have an article here that addresses those three states being able to import it. But in the meantime, there's another element of this importation and migration, which is that Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina want to sell these slaves to other states as well, and they got to be able to move to other places. Well, it would have been very easy to say, all right, you have slaves in your state, but they don't go out of your state, yeah. period. If, if they're in Georgia, they stay in Georgia. But again, you either have a country with slavery or you don't have a country. And they're not going to be on board for that because the whole point is if they're, you know, if that's a big part of their economy or something like that is moving slaves from place to place. Exactly. Well, not, not, not just the them. slaves, too, but all the work that they're doing. I mean, it's, right. it, there's elements here that, that enter into this. And the, the three southern states, particularly Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, along with the other slave holding states, saw this as a very positive thing. They actually believed, and if you read their writings, John, they will explain to you that they actually believed that the rest of the nation, after the con, see how much we've compromised here on the issue of slavery. We recognize you don't like it, but we'll keep our peculiar little institution down here, and, and it won't sully your, your little areas up there. And see how we've compromised, so now you can compromise with us. And eventually, they actually believed that their viewpoint would win over the rest of the nation, and that the entire nation would finally see the wisdom of having slavery in place. 
That's what they actually believed when the Constitution was ratified. And so the hope was, of course, that at least on the southern end of the thing, the, the hope was that slavery would actually expand. Well, and our hope was, that, you know, everybody else's hope was was the opposite, I'm sure. Oh, eventually, you know, the South will come around, and as long as we're all brothers here, and they agree to this, and da 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 Right. So they put this limit on here. You, can, you can't, uh, you can only import people until 1808. After that, but it doesn't say what happens after that. It just says Congress can't do anything until 1808, which is right. 20 years down the line. You think about that, 20 years, it's quite a while. So they're basically just saying that, like, you know, one way or another, you've got 20 years to continue things status quo. Exactly. And in 20 years, we'll revisit the issue. And maybe at that point we stop it. Maybe at that point we expand it. Who knows what happens at that point? And then, of course, the country is founded. The Constitution is enacted. And you immediately start in with the Northwest Ordinance. And the first thing Congress says is, now we're going to have all these new states. We don't want slavery in them. (laughs) Of course... The kerfuffle kicked up. Wait a second. (laughs) It's Afternoons Live. It's Constitution Thursday. 565 Dave is the text machine. Stay with us. We'll be right back. So welcome back. Afternoons Live. Constitution Thursday. I mentioned the fact that the judge had passed the wrote that about the Somerset case in England about slavery is de- deplorable. It's morally repugnant. That's about as far as he went, though. He didn't actually outlaw it. Didn't actually... So he just said, this is not this is bad. Yeah, that's it. Uh, but it's over my head to actually do that. Now, England would not actually ban slavery, even though it was not permitted in England. They would not actually ban it until 1833. But when they banned it, John... You know, there's an, banned it hard. There's an old saying about you know who the who the most fervent non-smokers are are generally ex-smokers. ex-smokers. Right. The most fervent ex, uh, anti-slavers became the English. They went on the war path against slavery. They actually built an entire squadron, the West Indies squadron, whose purpose was to do nothing except intercept and stop the slave trade really? down in the uh, down in the West Indies. That's really cool. So they sent like a like a whole little separate navy. navy down yeah. there to go and stop slave ships. They became uh, very very evangelistic about stopping the slave trade. Whether That's they cool. were successful or not, uh, who knows? But they uh, they certainly certainly came along in that direction. The southern states, as I said, believe that the clause being put in the Constitution, we're looking at Article 1, Section 9, the Slave Trade Clause, they believed that eventually people's minds would change in favor of slavery and that this little compromise on their behalf would, in fact, be the glue that held the country together. But as the country began to expand, Congress immediately did not want slavery in the new Northwest Territories, the the western states, the Ohio's, the Illinois's, that area, Kentucky's, they ended up getting it in Kentucky, but this caused a lot of problems and a lot of arguments and, and feelings began to be hurt, John. And the problem, the, the bigger issue was, and this is perhaps something that is overlooked many times in the discussion about slavery, because we tend to, we tend to pigeonhole slavery in American history into one general area, which is slavery, bad civil war in slavery. And that's pretty much the way we look at it. Like most things, the Civil War did not happen in a vacuum. It's a little more complicated than that. It's far more complicated than that. Um, The Civil War didn't happen until 1861. We're talking about, essentially, the 1790s here. 
the Constitution has been ratified, the Northwest Ordinance has gone into effect, and we have this idea, until 1808 at least, that the slave trade can just continue right on and nobody's going to do anything about it. Congress, for all of its powers that it has been given, this is the one thing that they've been told specifically, you cannot do anything about until January 1st, 1808. And the question then becomes, okay, what do we do on January 1st, 1808? Do we stop the importation and migration of slaves? Do we extend it? Do we, what do we do on that day? And of course, the southern states are hoping nothing, maintain the status quo. But there is a significant abolitionist movement within the United States. There is a huge number of people who believe, as the judge did in England, that slavery is morally repugnant. All men are created equal. Am I not a man? Am I not a brother? As James Somerset once said. They, in what becomes, John, one of the earliest examples under the Constitution, at least, of peaceful civil disobedience, they begin to break the law. Slaves occasionally will escape from the South and go north to free states. And along the way, people will hide them. In fact, networks will be set up to help escaping slaves get out of the state, known as the uh, the Underground Railroad. Much of the history of that will be focused on a couple of people, Harriet Tubman, some other folks along the way. But the fact of the matter is that there are literally hundreds of thousands of Americans in the northern areas and the non-slave state areas who are going out of their way, passively resist the idea of slavery being expanded. Hundreds of thousands of Americans to whom that's important enough to say this is that not they're going to break the law and we're not going to do this. We're not going to follow along. That's kind of awesome. It's incredible when you stop and think about it because it doesn't make the history books. It doesn't. You don't see this on the TV. That's kind of true, man, because, you know, they talk a lot about. I mean, I remember, you know, we talked about the Underground Railroad, of course, in school. But but that, that it was that big. No Huge. one. They, they did not make a big thing out of the scope of it. No. And they probably should have. And this is this is the really the beginning of this. And this is the problem. And this is when it starts to realize that compromise the the entire country is not going to see it your way south. They're not going to come on board with you. And as the clock moves inexorably towards 1808, it really becomes a flashpoint. Kind of a deadline, huh? Like like the south starts to realize we have happen. until then. Right. So they kick it up a little bit. They, uh, let's, let's import more. We, we don't know what's going to happen. And, of course, when the date 1808 rolls around, President Thomas Jefferson, on the 1st of January, signs the new bill, which bans the importation of slaves from henceforth on, immediately goes into effect. This, of course, leads some raw feelings. The South, the, the South is feeling somewhat betrayed by this. But even still, all that really says is that we can't bring any new can't, slaves can't over. Can't import any. Doesn't really affect the migration. Still can't tax the product. And and by the way, we couldn't tax them because remember, what if we'd have put a hundred dollar a head tax on on importing slaves? We could have we could have taxed this out of existence by making the tax so high that it wouldn't have been worth your time. But we didn't do that. And you've benefited economically from all of this. Um, but still, the feelings are rough. And there begins to be this sectionalism within the United States and this huge argument over. Is a slave a property, or is he a person? If he's property, then government has to keep their hands off him. Also, by the way, if the government frees him, he's still the government is de facto admitting that he's property, and they are taking it under the Fifth Amendment. Where's my just? Where's my compensation? 
Now, to us looking back at it today with the 2013 Prism on, we go, "We're ta- these are people for God's sake. Uh, can't they see that? No, they couldn't see that. I know it's impossible for you to understand that listening to it today. I know you listen to it today and you think it's all just a bunch of hill- redneck hillbillies. These were people who were steeped in the Constitution, who understood it word by word, who built it brick by brick. And they believed that they were right. And this argument got worse and worse and worse, and we all know where it's going to end up. I don't even have to tell you how it's going to end up. But now you have to ask the question about the Civil War. Was it simply a delayed war? Because they really believed when they framed the Constitution that if they tried to ban slavery initially, it would end up in what it wouldn't have been a civil war, but it would have been a war between the colonies for over resources, water, land. They would have fought a bloody-ass war in 1791 over all of that stuff. So did we just delay that war? Or was it made to be a war that was necessary by couching the argument in terms that were related to, but not exactly the issue at hand. I'm guilty of this myself along the way. Every historian wants to do this. Every historian wants to find the cause, the root cause of the Civil War. And we all come down to, well, states' rights. States' rights. States have rights. Well, as we've learned, that was never really the of the framers. And what states' rights are we actually talking about here? The repugnant, as it was called by the judge, right to own another person, which pretty much universally was recognized as a bad idea and not in keeping with the unalienable rights granted by our creator. And yet 500,000 Americans are about to go through the whole worst of hell for an argument that we look at today going, well, duh. It yeah. doesn't seem that complicated. They didn't see it that way. They, uh, Before they would get there, however, there were two things that were going to happen along the way that would really put this into focus for them all. We'll talk about those in just a second. It's half past the hour. It's Afternoons Live. Constitution Thursday. We'll be right back. Afternoons Live, KFIV, KWSX, everywhere on iHeartRadio, which is perfect for Constitution Thursday. It's me, Dave, along with John, in Article 1, Section 9 of the United States Constitution, otherwise known as the Slave Trade Clause. Now, it should also be noted that this, this clause has been made null and void. It's no longer in effect, for obvious reasons. I mean, the 13th Amendment banned slavery in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of Americans died to end slavery. And indeed, even after the banning of the importation of slaves, there were problems going along with uh, slave slave runners and the sorts of things like that. And it uh, it continued to be a problem as, as the moral outrage continued. 
You had things that came along, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, the, the novel that most, that motivates, that portrays this picture of, uh, of the life of slaves, and it's published in the North. Harry Beecher Stowe's novel is published, and it, it motivates Northerners and anti-slave folks, who, by the way, weren't just, just Northerners, let's be clear about that, um, to become more active in their resistance to the idea that slavery in the United States. But as the court eventually will rule, it's constitutional in the United States. The, the most famous, of course, example of this, and, and you've heard the, the name before, the Dred Scott case, generally recognized as the worst Supreme Court decision ever made. Um, I'll give it that just simply because of the moral outrage of it. It, it was the wrong decision but again, you're dealing with people who thought they were doing the right thing. We look at it with 21st century prisms on our eyes, and we go, how could they possibly have been that stupid? It's the mistake all historians make. We weren't there. We don't know exactly what they were thinking. We don't know their feelings. People may look back at us someday and say the same thing. But for the moment, let's consider what happened. Dred Scott was a slave who was... Oh, and I don't have time to go through the entirety of the case. It's quite an extensive case. But what you need to get are the main points of the case. Dred Scott was a slave who was owned. He was then sold by his owner in a non-slave state. His owner took him to a non-slave state, sold him to another person who happened to be an army officer, who then moved him back when he got transferred back to the south, down to Louisiana, took his slave and his wife with him. Now, because of the rulings that had been in place all along, the very fact that he had been taken to Minnesota to begin with made him a free man already under that law. And uh, Missouri as well. He was taken to Missouri. Under Missouri law, he was a free man. But he didn't leave. He stayed with his owner. His owner then eventually passes away. But while he's, before he passes away, he moves back to a free state again. I'm sorry, moved back to Minnesota. While he's in Minnesota with his slave, he leaves his slaves in Louisiana and rents them out, which is clearly against the law. That is flat out against the, the Northwest Ordinance. You cannot do that. They work for you or nobody else. You cannot rent slaves. But he does it anyway. He's an army officer. He eventually dies. The uh, Multiple trips are made between free states and slave states up and down the Mississippi River. The point of that being that at any point, Dred Scott and his family could have stepped off that boat and said, hey, we're free. We're leaving but didn't. And that's an important technicality of this case. Eventually, the owner dies. The uh, The widow continues to rent him out and his family out. And eventually, he realizes that, uh, well, I've made enough money now on my own that I can buy my freedom. And so he goes to the widow, says, here's my money. I'm Thanks for everything, and uh, we're buying our freedom. And she says no. And so, seeking the only recourse he has at that point, he goes to the Missouri State Court and sues for his freedom. Missouri rules that, no, we're not getting involved with this. By this time, it's 1857. The Compromise of 1850 has been violated. This is a powder keg. Hell, people are getting killed every day in Kansas over this. It's, it's becoming a political nightmare. And in the meantime, slaves are still escaping from the south and going north via the railroad along that route. And again... Hundreds of thousands of Americans are taking place in that, taking part in that. There is a 
overwhelming feeling in the country of slavery must be destroyed. But the problem is there's no political will to do it because it might mean war. Dred Scott sues for his uh, freedom. He, the, the case is thrown out on a technicality. He doesn't have a witness to say that uh, this guy is the guy that actually owned him when he was in Mississippi or Minnesota. So it's thrown out on the technicality. He refiles the suit. It regoes in the case. Missouri Supreme Court says, we're not touching this. We are not touching this. We are not getting involved. So they sent it up the chain. Even though our law says he'd be free, we're not getting involved. And so eventually it finds its way into the federal courts. Now here's where the problem lies. Dred Scott is not a citizen. He is a slave. Does a non-citizen have standing under the Constitution to sue? Does this argument sound familiar? It should. And in fact, in the Supreme Court, it's argued whether or not Dred Scott has the standing to sue for his freedom because he is, again, not a citizen. And the Supreme Court hears the arguments in 1856, February of 1856. They rehear the arguments again in December of 1856. And in the meantime, what has happened? The year is 1856. What has happened between February and December in 1856? Bueller? Anyone? A presidential election has occurred. And the winner of that election is a guy by the name of James Buchanan, who is deeply concerned about the fact that this country might go to war over slavery. And he believes that the best solution, much like Lincoln will believe it four years hence, the best solution is no solution at all. Maintain the status quo. And he is terrified that the Supreme Court of the United States is going to set this guy free. And so the president-elect of the United States, James Buchanan, actually corresponds with two Supreme Court justices off the record and convinces them... To help. Really? And in a 7-2 to two decision, the Supreme Court of the United States comes up with three rulings. Persons of African descent cannot be nor were ever intended to be citizens under the United States Constitution. Therefore, the plaintiff was without standing. Poof. Case dismissed. How, how did they come up with that interpretation? Secondly, and this is considered to be dictum, because since the case has been dismissed, there's no basis for this ruling. The property clause is only applicable to lands possessed at the time of ratification. As such, Congress cannot ban slavery in the territories, and thus the Missouri Compromise is unconstitutional. This is only the second time Congress has been told that an act they passed is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And lastly, due process clause of the Fifth Amendment prohibits federal government from freeing slaves brought into federal territory. This is known as the Dred Scott case, and there are howls of outrage around the country because, like John... You read it, I read it, and we all stand there and go, how in the world could they possibly have come to that conclusion? And James Buchanan goes into the White House and believes that he has temporarily at least solved the problem. And he has, at least until the next guy comes along. Quarter till, 565-DAVE, 565-3283. Stay with us back right after change if you knew that love can break your heart 
The year John was 1847, 10 years before the Dred Scott ruling, but some years after the importation of slaves had been banned, and the country was coming apart at the seams over slavery. What do we do? Hundreds of thousands of otherwise loyal American citizens are every day breaking the law by aiding escaping slaves and basically flaunting the fact that they're doing it. It's pretty clear which way the wind is blowing at this point, I would say. John Van Zant is a man who lives in the central areas of Ohio, Evans, Evan, Evandale, Ohio. He is one of the founders of the Sharon Methodist Episcopal Church, which is a church which is designed to minister to the needs of African Americans. He is an ardent anti-abolitionist. He is a family man. He has 11 children, and he works hard at what he does. But he believes that slavery is morally re- so reprehensible that he must, his his belief, his faith in God and his faith in the country, he believes that slavery must be destroyed. He is not like John Brown, who in Virginia will try to lead uprisings, a violent man. He is a man who believes in peaceful misconduct. He judges and uh, he judges slavery to be against his his primary faith, and he actually believes it to be unconstitutional and not in keeping with American principles. And so, even though he is one of the founders and one of the board members of the Sharon Methodist Episcopal Church, he continues to participate in slave escape activities. In the meantime, the Sharon Methodist Episcopal Church has found itself needing broader oversight as a church group. And so it has joined the Southern Conference of that particular branch of, uh, of theology. And that Southern branch of theology has this established document, uh, doctrine that slavery is just fine and dandy. And so he sort of finds himself on the outside looking in. They, the church, actually catches him in the process of helping slaves to escape to the north. They judge his conduct, his anti-slavery activities, to be, quote, immoral and unchristian. And they excommunicate him from the church. He was then charged by Wharton Jones, a slave owner who had lost his property. For monetary damages. He was sued by a slave owner for his helping of slaves escape. Case Jones versus Van Zant goes uh, 1847. It was settled by the United States Supreme Court, which the court said constitutionality of, of slavery is not in question here, and it is against the law for you to help them escape. Therefore, you will pay. It ruined him. The abolitionists pressed the case all the way to the constitutionality. The uh, Salmon P. Chase defended him in front of the Supreme Court. Court ruled against him. Chief Justice Robert B. Tanney, who was the uh, the uh, same guy that will uh, end up giving us the Dred Scott ruling, determined that slavery was protected by the Constitution. The federal government had the right and the obligation to support it. 
Thus, the 1793 Fugitive Slave Law was constitutional. States could determine whether slavery would be legal within their own boundaries. Years of challenges, Zand had lost all of his land, all of his property, and had to send his 11 children out of his home to live in other places with other relatives. Couldn't afford to feed his own children. He died that year penniless and all but forgotten by history. I tell you that story not because there's anything particularly special in it. John Van Zant is a name that's lost to pretty much all of history. In fact, his character is actually in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, but it's done as a pseudonym, and it's not really him. It's just kind of drawn from him. So even in that, you don't really get his story. But this is one of hundreds of thousands of Americans who stood against slavery long before there was a Dred Scott, long before there was a Civil War. And you got to believe that their actions helped to destroy slavery. He lost everything. Chief Justice Taney increased sectional tensions with his ruling, 1850s. Uh, Southerners managed to push through a new Fugitive Slave Act that required states to support enforcement and increase the penalties for those aiding escaped slaves. And all that did was, as I believe Princess Leia once said, the harder you squeeze, the more systems slip through your fingers. John Van Zant died, was buried, forgotten. Until 2005, when the Sharonville United Methodist Church which had once a long time ago been the pro-slavery Southern faction, realized, crap, we screwed up. And they sent a letter to his descendants, formally apologizing for his expulsion. It is that forgotten history of this whole issue, what George Washington called explicit and authentic acts by the American people that will bring about the changes that need to be made. And like John, like Dred Scott, like so many others, there was a whole lot more to getting rid of slavery than just a war. Maybe it's time that we start remembering those people by not just skipping over these sections of the Constitution, lest we forget them. Back in six. Well, that puts the wrap on Constitution Thursday. Tomorrow on the show, John, we've got uh, Congressman Jeff Denham will be here, scheduled to be here in the 3 o'clock hour. So get your questions ready. I think what we'll do tomorrow, let's get in here just about five minutes early, open up the phones a little bit early so we can start getting calls lined up. Because I don't want to spend a lot of time in preamble and all that tomorrow. Let's just get straight to him. Okay. And so have your calls ready for Congressman Denham right right at the top. We'll have fun with news. And then top five ethnic food restaurants out about the valley. Where can you go to get good fill-in-the-blank type food? And we're not limiting it to one ethnicity or another. It could be if you like uh, Samoan food versus a Samoan blend. If it's not American food, that's what we're talking about. That's what we want to hear the most. So get your list together and get it on in there. Don't forget tonight, opening night out at Banner Island Ballpark. The ports are home. The nuts don't come home until next Thursday. They're uh, they're down 
Inland Empire tonight. So good luck to both teams. Let's have a great baseball season. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life. You love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. Don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave. That's John. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. And we'll see you tomorrow for a Friday episode of Afternoons Live on KFIV 1360 AM Modesto, KWSX 1280 AM Stockton, everywhere via iHeartRadio on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. Rusty Humphreys is next. Afternoons Live is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for Clear Channel and Entertainment Modesto.